Hebrews 13, so we're, we've made it to the final chapter of Hebrews, and so I will share today, and then we'll have a break of four weeks. You'll hear from some other men. I'm looking forward to what God puts on their heart. As I mentioned, one of the things I'll do, uh, one of those Sundays I'll be up in Lynchburg. Pastor Troy and his wife uh, invited us up and get a chance to see what God's doing there and uh, get a chance to see what God's doing. And other, other men of God that I am in partnership with and seeing you know, what God is doing collectively and just bring some of those things back into my own mind and how we kind of look forward. Uh, but we'll open up the 13th chapter today and then, uh, and then we'll finish it and I'll kind of show you that in just a minute, uh, in September. Starting with verse 1, if you have your Bibles open, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are, all, are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these words. May they refresh us this morning. Remind us, Lord, bring us closer into the presence of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in our lives to live these things out. Teach us, Lord, once again remove me from the equation that Myself and my brothers and sisters, we would hear from you, and not a man, but hear from the Lord. We ask your blessing on this Bible study and this time together this morning. Bless each and every person watching online and here in your name we pray. Amen. We're only covering the first six verses here this morning, but chapter 13, uh, the final chapter here in the book of Hebrews, consists of 25 verses of concluding directions and commands and exhortation. The pivot of this closing chapter, after 12 chapters of detailed doctrine and strong warnings, Christ revealed, and the certainty that heaven is our home, after now fully knowing that Jesus is our rest, our Savior, our covering, our high priest, our mediator, and our example of patient endurance. After seeing our clear call to life of faith and obedience and the testimonies of all those that have lived before us, after being taught that even the chastening of God is a blessing, amen, and causes a fruitful work in our lives. And after being reminded with all these truths and all these promises, we can only run our race by grace. 
only by grace. A race by grace. And so the essence of these concluding words, starting with these first six verses, the writer is saying, now, go live it out. Run well. Put it all into practice. Not just some of you, but the whole church of believers. And then watch and see what God will do. Do you believe that? If we do it, God will honor it. If you're taking notes, you see the title, Faith in Action. And something I don't always do, but given the emphasis and the structure of chapter 13, as it relates to the whole church family, and my being out the next few weeks, here's a road map. Look on the screen. Here's a road map of what we'll be looking and learning from today but also when I finish Hebrews in September. The closing studies that will coincide with our coming back as a body, at least for a couple Sundays, and a communion Sunday, and then we'll close out the summer and move into the fall, and Lord willing, a harvest. But my prayer is that we take all that the Lord's given us in chapters 1 through 12, and by His Spirit, he brings us even closer together to help one another. Strengthen to do his will in these times. Amen? Amen? Let's pray again. Father, we just ask this study, the ones in September, Lord, remove anything the enemy would put in our way to keep us from running our race with grace. I ask for your strength as I preach. I ask for your strength for the men in the coming weeks. Lord, we need your presence. We need you to teach us, to help us to run this race with endurance as Jesus did before us, to put these things into practice. Lord, we ask your blessing now. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, I typically have three main points to cover, but not always, and not today. In these six verses, we'll look at six commands. So we will get out of here about 3 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, no. I'm just kidding. And the imperatives listed out in verses 1 through 6. But look back at verse 1 and this first imperative. And again, these commands are all first to us individually. Where it says, let brotherly love continue. Verse 1. But imagine a church body where all these are lived out. All of them, to put in, all of them are put into action as the norm will grow exponentially as love-filled, caring, compassionate, pure, thankful, and a bold body of believers. God wants us to have all of that. Amen? Amen. Love, boldness, gratitude. By faithfulness, by the faithfulness of Christ and the supernatural work of the Spirit, these things can happen. Only by Christ and the Spirit can these things happen. I don't know about you, but I want to grow in all six of these. You see one you don't want to grow in? I want to grow in all six. Okay, back to verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. If you're taking notes, let's, go, let's jump right in. So we aren't here till 3. A couple of thoughts here. Number one, let's continue what started with Jesus. Let's continue what started with Jesus. 
living in brotherly love, what started with Jesus, Jacob and the Old Testament. You guys remember Jacob, right? Later becomes Israel. He had how many sons? Twelve. He had twelve sons. They didn't start out as a loving bunch of brothers, did they? Mm -mm. They weren't a loving bunch of brothers to start out with. And although Jacob was greatly used of God, he was infinitely inferior to Jesus in demonstrating and leading love among his 12. Jacob's 12 versus Jesus' 12. So then Jesus comes along and he picks 12 men. Disciples, they weren't all brothers, some of them actually were. They became brothers in the faith. Later they become what? Apostles. And they live as brothers with Jesus. And he taught them to what? Deny themselves. Matter of fact, it's impossible to love other people unless you deny yourself. You have to consider others better than yourself. He taught them to deny themselves. They had to look past each other's faults. Even those of you online, you have faults too. Other people have to look past them. I love uh, uh, my good friend, Pastor Tony down in Newport News, he sent out this week something that said something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing, he said, I've learned to walk away from people who are always picking out my faults while I'm overlooking all of their faults. <laughs> and the reality is we all have faults, but really if we're going to love one another, love covers a multitude of sins. We all are going to step on each other's toes. Jesus was teaching the disciples, and they said, how, how often should we forgive each other? He basically said, an infinite amount of times to love each other as brothers, to look past faults, look past grievances. He also told them, Jesus told them in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you're my disciples. We talk about this word a lot. We're not just meant to be church sitting. We don't have pews anymore, but you know whatever these kind of chairs are called now. Warming a seat. No. Disciples. If you have love for one another. This is so different than the world today, which has nothing but cynicism for one another. Bitterness towards one another. In other words, brotherly love is essential inside the body, but it's always a light outside the body. Amen? It's always a light to the world. Like, man, you guys actually love each other. I mean, we're actually... Um, we're pleasantly pleased. It's a double, anyway. But anyway, uh, we, when, when we're out and we'll have uh, parents of other kids or say to us about our daughters, they really seem like they love each other. Like other parents think this is some kind of foreign thing that siblings actually love each other. And, and, I, and we, we've come, we hear it all, don't, don't we? We hear it all the time. People say to us, like, wow, your, your daughters really seem to love each other. And I guess that it's become you know, more and more like people. It's not that the other people's kids all are like at each other's throat, but just kind of ambivalent towards one another. And in the body of Christ, real love should be the same way, just as God wants families to be tight-knit. Not tight-knit to the point that they couldn't care less about people outside their family, but tight-knit in a way that actually is, hey, I'd like to have that. Well, we would not only be not at each other's throat inside the body of Christ, but we also wouldn't be just kind of 
ambivalent towards each other, and like, eh, I don't really care for them one way or the other. You, know, you see what I mean? There's actually a closeness. And Jesus said this brotherly love is a light to the world. So it started with Jesus. The world is so cynical, so conditional. It's very grudge-keeping, isn't it? It's very self-centered. But we're to maintain love and kindness. It's exactly what Jesus modeled. And these believers were practicing it. That's a good thing. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you guys are doing this, let it continue. But it requires effort. It requires intentionality. And the word love here is the Greek word Philadelphia. That's what the word in the Greek means, Philadelphia. If you thought it was just the home of the eagles and the Phillies and all that kind of stuff. No, uh, it's called the city of brotherly love because that's what the Greek definition of Philadelphia is, brotherly love. Sisterly love. It means to cherish. That we would be a family. That we would be connected. That we would have relationship. That we'd care for one another. We'd actually have time for one another. Be able to listen to one another. Help one another. We understand the word fellowship means koinonia, or the Greek word koinonia, means to have communion. means to have partnerships. Sharing and participation, all that is part of the word koinonia, or fellowship. And fellowship and love go hand in hand. They're connected. You can't have a good marriage. If you're watching online and you're married, you cannot have a good marriage that doesn't involve brotherly love, even though you have other forms of love in a marriage, but brotherly love, and also fellowship. You act, me and my wife are not just married. We're best friends. So we have brotherly, sisterly, friendship type of relationship, but obviously a lot more than that, but there has to be real fellowship, partnership, communion. We take communion, why? Because we're one with Christ. That's the whole concept of the Lord's Supper, of communion. And the same is true inside the church. Jesus has put us in his body that we would be one with him as he's one with the Father, John chapter 17. Now, the communion and the fellowship and the love, some of it has to be planned. In other words, we have to be intentional to say, we will gather as a body every Sunday. That's planned, right? But other has to be organic. In other words, you have to branch out and build relationships. Let brotherly love continue. Let it grow, not just continue, but anything that continues in God's economy grows. It's fruit-bearing. There has to be gatherings have meals together, conversations like the disciples had with Jesus. Well, have, you, know, we saw, you saw we have a tailgate part three coming in September. Come out to it. Well, that's really not my thing. Who cares if it's your thing? It, if it's ministering to someone else, then it's about them. Very little of what I do as a believer is really about me. I mean, I mean, there are lots of times that it's about me, but Lord's let, most times when God's asking me to do something, it has nothing to do with me. The Lord's like, no, 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 I, I already know you're well fed in this, now go feed somebody else, spiritually speaking. So just come out and hang out. I think you'll uh, be blessed, and it's really the kind of things that God wants to see us continue in. Let's take a look at the next one, hospitality and care. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. This is a continuation of brotherly love, but it's specifically focused 
on using what God has given to us to bless and welcome other people. The Greek word here for entertain, it's used ten times in the New Testament. Six of those times, it's used, and the word, the mean words, uh, the word means lodge, to lodge, right? So it puts someone up uh, for a night, if you will. One time, it means entertain. So that doesn't mean you have to get all like a banjo out, you know, that kind of, you know, I'm here to entertain you tonight, you know, that kind of thing. But to lodge six times to keep them out, you understand that in the first century they didn't have hotels all over the place. So whenever you study the New Testament, or the Old Testament too, the context is important. Uh, they didn't have hotels everywhere. Uh, you had to put people up when they came through. And one of the uh, early church um, focuses was if somebody was trying to stay more than two nights without it being planned or anything, consider them a false prophet or a false prophet or an apostate. They're just trying to mooch off you. But on the other hand, the church had to be very willing to lodge strangers and people coming through, and you had to do it often because they didn't have the hotels. So people were coming through town. All the time. This was actually normal in the 1700s in America, too. If you study history, you'll actually find that a lot of this was very normal uh, all up and down the 13 colonies and things like that. Today, we don't have that kind of hospitality. And, matter of fact, what's sad is it's very common in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, and parts, you know, you'll actually find much more hospitable families uh, than you'll find in a lot of American, of, of when they don't know the person. And it, entertaining strangers. But again, this was actually meant to believers. This would be you and I as believers welcoming those of the body of Christ from who knows where and willing to kind of show that kind of love and care for them. We're to be uh, hospitable and welcoming people. The application for us today, less of the lodging, but not, ex not excluding the lodging. We, you know, before I left um, corporate America, we finished out a, a guest room that we have used countless times for missionaries and people traveling. And we, when they come, we tell them, we don't even care if you come out of the room for three days. Just sleep nonstop for three straight days if you have been working that hard and pouring out. And we've, we've really, some of them have taken us up on it. Like we have not seen them for the first couple days. They're just white from jet lag and from serving. And so we, we've done this. And we actually get more out of it than they do because we end up learning about a different culture or what God's doing in some other part of the world. But we're to be hospitable. The point is we're to be hospitable and welcoming people into our homes. And not just our comfy clique of close friends. This is really a, a sad commentary in the church. A lot of people will welcome people over that's the same group that they always invite over again and again. And I'm not I actually think it's good to have close friends. You can't have a, a tight circle with 800 people. I get that. So you do need to have some close friends, but you can't be ex exclusive with your close friends. Just your comfy clique. Uh, notice the emphasis here. Strangers. Could it be more clear? Strangers. People we don't know as friends. People we don't know well. Jesus spoke directly to this and with some additional context. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. Verse 13 and 14, when you give a feast, in my case that would be grilling, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. 
Some of you have been robbed of blessing because you've yet to pull this off. Invite over some people that can never pay you back and won't pay you back and don't have the means to pay you back because they cannot repay you for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. How about that? Jesus says, uh, I'll pay you back when you die and come home with me. He's, he doesn't pull any punches here. I'll pay you back, but that's when I'll do it. Now, he could do it before that, but he's like, worst case scenario, that's when I'll pay you back. If you get it before then, just added blessing. In other words, be willing and active as a gracious host. And not just to people in our circle, and our friends, and our familiar believers, but those that, can't, again, can't, can't do this. They can't, they can't have a feast. They, they can barely put food on the table. He'll cover it. If God's given you a home, I'm speaking to you online as well, if God's given you a home and some food and an income, use it to bless others. This is what hospitality looks like. And by the way, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, both of those are pastoral letters, leadership letters to the body of Christ. It's mandated that elders practice being hospitable. If you find a pastor that says, yeah, I, uh, you know, I just kind of teach the word and that's all I do. I'm like the CEO. That's not pastoring. That's, you have to be hospitable. If you can't host, you can't lead in the Bible. If you cannot host, you cannot lead. Romans 12, 13, uh, just like here, indicates everyone. These are everyone commands. Hospitality, though, takes work, doesn't it? Everything is strewn everywhere, especially if you have little boys over. They find toys you didn't know you had. They find stuff that aren't toys you forgot you had. You're like, when did I let you into the garage? Uh, you know, the, well, you didn't, but I found that they were in the attic. I mean, all over the place. That's how when you invite boys over. And I was, I was really bad as a kid. Parents loathed when I came over. You know, they, they, I'm sure they, they hid everything that they possibly could. But hospitality takes work because our faith takes work. And once again, these believers, they were faithful in this area. But they're reminded not to fade in this area. Remember to do it. Continue to do it. Don't forget to keep doing it. And how about the fact that we might just fix a meal or buy a meal or serve an angel and not even know it? How's that for God potentially serving up a test case to you or to me to say, you know, I'm going to send this homeless person walking right by you and see what you do. Now, there, there's plenty of times that, uh, that I don't do anything, but there's times where I feel a sense from the Lord, and I'll pray, Lord, is there something you want me to do here? And I don't know until I get to heaven if he said, you acted, and you didn't know it, but I sent somebody just to test you. And not only an angel, it could be really a person that he's just kind of put in your path, but imagine you, you, some individual comes here for three or four weeks straight, you take them out to lunch, and all of a sudden you never see them again. Remember, Jesus says, I'll take care of it. I'll repay you. You just be hospitable. Show that care. Let's take a look at the next one. 
Remember the prisoners as a them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Well, the action of real love continues here as well. How can we forget our hurting and persecuted brothers and sisters around the world? Well, we can if we're self-absorbed. It's easy to forget them if we're self-absorbed. But we're not to be oblivious to their pain and their suffering. While we're sitting here in an air-conditioned building, we have brothers and sisters right now that are literally in prisons that might be over 100 degrees right now or freezing cold and nothing to eat. And Paul knew this personally. Now, this, we don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews, but other apostles, or again, uh, 11 of the 12 apostles were all martyred for the faith. They knew what it was like to be mistreated. But Paul said in Romans 16, 7, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners who are among note, among the apostles, fellow prisoners. I've never been in prison for the faith, have you? But I don't want to forget those that are in prison for the faith or have been in prison for the faith. And Hebrews 13 tells us I can't forget and we're commanded to remember them. We just prayed a few minutes ago. We got on our knees. And one of the things I pray when I got up, I pray for revival, but I continually pray for the persecuted church. I don't want to stand before the Lord someday and say, I didn't really have time to pray for them. No, because we're part of the same body. If they're hurting, we're hurting. Your whole body, even if it's all feeling great, go ahead and take a hammer and hit your thumb. And you won't care that the other thumb is feeling great. You'll only care about the part that's throbbing. Don't do it, by the way. Uh, but you <laughs> accidentally, when it happens, remember that when one part of you is hurting, you actually have more attention to that area, not less. If, your head, if you have a headache, you're not caring so much that, hey, my foot feels great. You're just focused on the migraine you're having. Well, we're all part of the body. And what a reminder here to be praying and interceding for those that are in prison, those who are attacked for the faith. If we don't remember them, we certainly won't be praying for them. If we don't remember them, we're not going to be praying for them. We have to consciously say, Lord, help me to keep them front and center in my prayer life. We should be praying for those around the world in our personal prayer life, but also gathering together to pray for them. Uh, we, every November we have the prayer prayer time IDOT for the uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and I encourage you to be uh, extra involved this year. But one of the imperatives is it's more than just personal prayer. This should be, just this one request should be more than enough motivation to come to our prayer nights, if you're able to. I'm not saying you've got to work, that's a different story, but uh, you're sick or whatever, but if you're able to come, this should be more than enough to come out to our prayer nights, because one of the things we always pray for is the persecuted, and gather together to pray for them. At minimum, dial in. We've been doing uh, Zoom calls with in parallel. We just started that. Dial into the Zoom call. It's not that hard. You know, pick, click, uh, hit link, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but we're called to have the same care as if we were in prison. Right. And we're not in prison. And I guarantee if we were in prison, we'd want people praying for us. Amen? All of a sudden, it's important when we're in prison. Everything's important when it's happened to us. Other people are losing their job around the country due to the virus. We don't give much thought. We lose our job. The prayer chain needs to be hit immediately. 
Matter of fact, we should stop hitting the prayer chain if we don't pray for these things sometimes. I think maybe say, hey, you know what? I don't really pray for this that much. I probably should lay off the prayer chain for this one. Well, that's not, that's stepping on some toes right there, you know. But uh, you know, we we could set aside a few meals and fast and pray for people in the body, those that are suffering for Jesus. But not only praying, we also need to do a better job as a body of Christ at meeting some of these physical needs. Amen. Amen. James says, don't just hey, you be warm over there. He says, if you don't say, be warm, plus hand them a coat, what have you really done? You know, we, we need to uh, be more conscious, say, Lord, where can we be of material assistance to people that are suffering for the name? And not just persecution, maybe, again, it's just the body of believers, a whole family has been you know, turned upside down because they lost their job. Are we going to care, or are we just going to say, oh, that's somebody else to take care of it. Somebody will do something. We need to be the somebodies. This is an area I want to continue to grow in. I know God wants us to grow in it. That's why it's written here. He wants all of us to grow in it. Where we can, I believe the Lord uh, would have us bless even materially, not just through prayer, but certainly starts with prayer, but materially those that are chained. Let's take a look at uh, the next one here. It's a uh, gear shift. He says marriage in verse, uh, verse 4, marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So we have, a, as I mentioned, a shift and uh, kind of direction here away from these kind of things to be doing for one another and he targets a very important part of not only the church but the world. What did God plant in the garden that everything grew from. A man and a woman. The whole world started with a marriage. Amen? And the whole of Scripture is even Israel was the bride of the Lord and betrothed unto them. And then Christ in the church, the picture of marriage is, it's unmistakable, it's an umbrella over all of the Scriptures that God has always desired that the kind of intimacy that Jesus prayed about in John 13 would be typified and the purity that you see in the Trinity that we would actually see a like manner of that in marriage relationships. And so we have this guard here, uh, this warning, marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So we have this warning against sexual immorality that was pervasive in the Roman Empire and I would say it's plenty problematic here in the United States. Wouldn't you agree? It wasn't just in Roman time. We have it here. <clears throat> but God has ordained marriage, one man, one woman, as the institution where he'll fully bless, not just allow, it says marriage is honorable. Isn't that great? It doesn't say marriage is a pretty good thing, marriage is okay, take it or leave it. Honorable. And not only that, sexual relations within marriage, God will bless. God created the sexual relationships. God's not against it. He's against anything that deviates from what he created as pure. The marriage bed is not only acceptable, but according to God it's honorable. If we submit to God's creation and design of marriage. God designed it. For one man and one woman, no other types of relationships will God honor. That is it. 
1 Corinthians 7.2, it says, Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. This is focused on, this, this text in Hebrews 13 is focused on sexual purity, but we so need, hear me on this loud and clear, we need it at CCR, we need it in the church in America, we need it in the, just in our nation. We so need healthy marriages. I was at lunch um, not long ago, or, or a meal, I think it was about seven or eight guys. I looked around, and I looked around and I counted only one of us hadn't come from divorced parents. I was like, I didn't even mention it to them. I just kind of looked around. He's from divorce, he's from divorce, he's from divorce. Seven or eight of us were from divorced families. Let me make some, one thing clear to you, Malachi. God hates divorce, and I hate it even more every year that I'm alive. Now, I don't hate people that have been divorced. God restores. I, I get all that. I'm thankful. God does great restorations. I've seen blended families, and God's restored. But we don't need to get to those points sometimes if we would just repent now. Amen? Amen. We need healthy marriages, Amen. pure marriages. But the world, which rejects God in every other way, of course has this anything-goes mindset. A lot of people aren't even getting married anymore. And it's infected the church. A lot of people in the church think it's okay to just live together and all this stuff. It's not okay just to live together. It's still sin. The church is called to purity. We cannot have people living together sexually as if they're married when they're not married. Even in this church or any other church, uh, the world may call adultery an affair or a fling, but God calls it what? Sin. That's what he calls it. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but not when it comes to sexual sin. He commits sin against his own body. In other words, it defiles the person, not just their mind, but it affects every part of their body, soul, and spirit. And sexual sin, it doesn't just destroy marriages, not only does it have horrible consequences, but it also destroys the work of the church. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, you got a, you got, you've got sexual immorality there and you're not even dealing with it. Paul's like, it cannot, it's going to infect everybody. Remember in the Old Testament when Achan had stolen? <laughs> they lost a battle until that sin was dealt with. God said, no, it has to be dealt with. You cannot, we cannot just leave sin in the camp. And I don't I don't know who I'm talking to. I'm just reading what Hebrews says. If this applies to you, God's talking to you. That's all I'm telling you. God's speaking to all of us collectively, but again, uh, even though it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it's speaking of the individual, uh, not only does it weaken the individual, but remember we're part of the body of Christ. It weakens the body, the church body. We all pay a price for other people's sin. That's why, again, divorce, oh, it's just me and mom. No, no, the kids are recovering for years. Well, dad found a better looking secretary, so, you know, that kind of thing. No. 20 years later, the kids are still trying to pick up their emotional pieces from these kind of things. And so uh, it affects family bodies, but it affects church bodies too. So... The writer of Hebrews is not backing off saying, no, no, you guys got to keep it pure. 
Stay close to Jesus. The apostles, did you know the apostles continually warned about sexual immorality? All throughout the New Testament, they continually warned, don't let it in. Just as Jesus did in the letter of the seven churches, go read Revelation 1 through 3. You'll see Jesus addresses sexual immorality in the church right there as well. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, no, this cannot. Remember when they wrote the, uh, the letter uh, to the churches, sent it back up to Antioch, one of the main things, make sure you're taking care of the poor and don't let there be any sexual immorality. Very important. We're to stay, away, stay far, far away from it. Stay far away from anything that would tempt or facilitate it. We live in a day and age where pornography is on phones all over the place, and it's rising like crazy. I told you when the pandemic hit, uh, you know, one of those sites offered free pornography to the whole country of Italy. Amazing, because that's where the, a lot of the Bible was written to Romans and all that stuff. But uh, you think about it. But even pornography is a complete violation of the purity and sanctity of marriage. It's fornication if you're outside of marriage. It's adultery if you're inside of marriage. There's no other way to call it. We need to stop coddling these things. It's adultery of the heart is what it is. And so we need to confess it and get rid of it in our life. And God wants a pure church and a pure, mar pure marriage is within the church. Uh, last two to take a look at here. Verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Another warning here. To keep us from walking in the ways of the world. We'll either be content with what we have or we won't. That's pretty simple, huh? We'll either be content or we won't. We live in a society with an insatiable appetite for new stuff, more stuff better stuff. And when I have all this stuff, I can get a storage unit down the street to hold my old stuff. Until it's discovered, and then some cable show shows people rummaging through it to sell it, you know, that kind of thing, right? right, right. But the coveting and the craving of things leads to idolatry. Ingratitude and ultimately, misery. The most miserable people you meet are people that never have enough. Jesus is enough, brother and sister. Amen? 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. You can't have one without the other. If you're content, you'll find godliness. If there's godliness, you'll find contentment. Now, the author is unknown on this, but it says the secret, uh, the secret of contentment is the realization, realization that life is a gift, not a right. Amen. Say that. Life is a gift, not a right. We have a lot of beliefs of what are rights, but you know, we don't really have any rights. We just have the gift of grace to ask for mercy. Mm -hmm. And that's true. We don't have any rights. God owes us nothing. Do you know that? God doesn't owe us anything. He willingly gives us. We ask for His grace. We ask for His provision. And He decides what we have. He decides what we have. He decides how much you're going to make, what you'll have. Not us. It's not us to just build our own little kingdoms. He says, thy kingdom come. His will. We're commanded to appreciate what we have, and give thanks for all that we have. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, for me. 
the love of things, the love of money, the desire for more and more is the complete opposite of being thankful and appreciative of God's goodness. And by the way, I'll say, the longer you're alive, those of you that are a little older in years, you know this. You have to, you have to tell it to young people. This. They don't believe you the first 20,000 times you tell it to them. But, um, but uh, you keep telling them anyway. But the older you get, you've come to realize that it's those times when you didn't have much, you became more thankful for things you were never thankful for. Like you were all of a sudden thankful for blue skies. You're all of a sudden thankful for just the color on the trees. You're all of a sudden thankful for just a bowl of cereal, anything. But when you had everything, you weren't that thankful. It's an amazing thing. That, that when God brings you through a crisis, all of a sudden you're in a hospital bed for three weeks. All of a sudden, being healthy was a big deal to you. So in other words, contentment, we need to know that to be content now, don't wait for a crisis to become content. Although crisis has taught me contentment. Amen? Amen. Amen. It's taught me, wow, you know, I really didn't need all this other stuff to make me happy. Contentment. Be content with such things as you have. Avoid covetousness. If you say, if, you're, if you sense this, I need, I need, I need, just say, Lord, I'm going to get on my knees. Forgive me for that. Nip it in the bud. Last thing let's take a look at as we come to a close here. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now I know that if you're reading these passages, they transition rather quickly. <laughs> uh, the writer is saying, look, I've given you 12 chapters of deep doctrine, now go live it out. And here's a checklist. Make sure that if, if you're a pastor, make sure that you're preaching this. Make sure if you're in the church, you're living this. And if the church is doing it, you'll be healthy. You'll be vibrant. You'll be growing. But when it all comes down to it, Jesus has your back. Amen? Amen? Amen. When you're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm still skinning my knees. In the middle of verse 5 and 6, where it says, For he himself has said, it's in direct response to the warning and the counsel to be content and to avoid the love of money or, put it this way, the trust of money. I don't really love money. I just, I just trust it like crazy. Jesus doesn't want either. Amen? Amen? He doesn't want us loving it or leaning on it. That's why we're able, if we're not leaning on money, we're able to be hospitable. We're able to share. We're able to help strangers. But if we are leaning on money, we're like, no, 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 I can't help anybody because I could lose my job someday and I'll never be able to help them. No, don't love it or lean on it. What we possess or we think we possess, it can't save us. It can't extend our life. It can't provide us peace. It can't refresh us. It certainly can't minister to our soul. All the stuff, you can own it all, and it can't do anything for you. Only God can do that. Amen? Only God can do that. To go back to last week, we need the unshakable things of the Spirit. The unshakable things of the Spirit. The soul level things where Jesus says, now you have trust in me, you have contentment, you're at peace. Remember the man, uh, Horatio... I forgot, it's Spafford? Anyway, when it, uh, you know, he wrote as well with my soul. 
Lost all of those things, including his daughters. But he's like, it is well with my soul. Jesus wants us to have that kind of unshakable confidence that it's well with us. Dr. Al Mohler said this, he said, everything that can be taken away from us will be taken away from us one day. Nevertheless, we have everything we need in Christ. Do you understand that? Everything you currently own is going to be taken away from you one day? All the things you could, what if I lost this? You will. Eventually it's all going away. So once you kind of realize that, you can actually lean back into the everlasting arms of Jesus and say, why am I worried so much about all this when it's going to end up in either the county dump or with future grandkids? You've heard it said, if you have everything but don't have Christ, you have nothing. If you have nothing but Christ, you have everything, right? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. This other stuff's going to fade. It's going to rust. It's going to corrupt. But what a truth and a promise. Things can't help us. And people aren't really our real help. People that you think will be your help will not sometimes, oftentimes. And they can't harm us beyond what God allows either. He says, what can man do to me? They can't help us to a degree. They can't harm us. Only what Jesus, only what God allowed. Job's life taught us this entire... You want, read the book of Job, and you'll see that everything he said here was manifested. Only a certain amount of harm, only a certain amount of things. He, didn't lear, he learned not to trust in his stuff anymore. The whole book of Job is actually kind of this whole theme right here in this closing point. But the bottom line is, Jesus will never, ever ever leave us or forsake us. Those of you online, Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. Do we believe this? Everything else can forsake us. Jesus will not. Isn't that great? He's not going to forsake us. The Lord is our helper. That's what it says. He says, the, the Lord is our help. The Lord is my helper. In Psalm 54, 4, it says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, is also called what? The helper. The Holy Spirit will never leave me because I'm sealed to the day of redemption. He's not going to leave me or forsake me. Which is good because I can screw a lot of things up. Right? I can forget truths, but he reminds me of truth. I can forget these same six verses in six minutes. And then he re-reminds me. But it's funny, when I'll go on my runs and I'll, uh, I'll be meditating on what I just read, but I'll also have verses just pop back to me that I read three months ago. Because the Holy Spirit says, I'm not going to forsake you to not remember this, remember this, remember this, keep this, because it keeps your feet on the path, running that race with grace. The Spirit is our helper. Jesus will never leave us. He's given us not the spirit of fear, not the spirit of discontent. Brother and sister, as we close, trust Him. Trust Him with these passages. Say, Lord, I, what if I apply all these? I've never really done it. Never, we've never hosted a stranger. That, you know, what, all the, what if we do this? Jesus says, did I promise that I'd bless you for it? Then you can do this. And relax. Amen? Right. Jesus 
will not forsake us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow again before you. We thank you for these reminders. Lord, not to forget. Continue brotherly love. Lord, to, to be caring and compassionate. To keep things pure. To keep uh, immorality out of our minds, out of our hands, out of our lives. Lord, to not be covetous, but to be content to be grateful for what you've given us. We have far more than we deserve. And Lord, to be trusting, to just put our, our hope and our strength found in leaning on your everlasting arms. And so Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Not only for our salvation, but you continually reminding us to walk this path in newness of life. Not just for ourselves, but Lord, that others may come to know the peace that surpasses all human understanding. Thank you that you're our helper and that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.